0: Michael read the entirety of the passage from Acts. I'm going to read from James uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here, the epistle of James. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do, not, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But you show, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment's This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've been preaching through James and uh, while I'm taking a, a, a break, uh, from that this morning, in a sense, it's really just a detour that's going to connect back into James. Uh, we're going to look especially at the martyrdom of Stephen. But you need to know that this story of Stephen's martyrdom is linked to James in all kinds of ways. Stephen and James, two of the most prominent figures in the very earliest church, in the very earliest days after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, Stephen and James are connected in all kinds of of ways. So before we really begin going through James chapter 2, which I hope to get into next week, Lord willing, uh, I think it's going to be helpful to look at this passage from Acts, at, from Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. But I want you to see some connections between the way Acts presents the story of Stephen's martyrdom and various themes in the letter of James, because these two really go together. Think about this. Um, I've said this before, that James addresses his letter to the diaspora. Uh, that term means those who are scattered. James 1.1 says to the diaspora of the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, Acts tells us who the diaspora are. Acts tells us when the diaspora happened. If you look at Acts 8.1 and 8.4, you see that terminology used. The same terminology that James uses. After Stephen has been put to death, Jewish Christians who had been bunched together in Jerusalem began to fan out because of Stephen's death. Therefore, Acts says, these Christians began to move out from there into new places. Well, these are the Christians James is writing to, these uh, scattered Christians, those who scattered specifically because of Stephen's death. So Stephen's death is a huge part of the context to James' letter. These Christians have been displaced. They're on the run, the ones James is writing to, because Stephen was martyred. James is writing to people who witnessed Stephen's death and have had their lives completely altered by Stephen's martyrdom. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 12 promises a crown of life to those who endure. Those who persevere through trials will be given a crown of life. The word for crown is Stephanos. The name Stephen means crown. Stephen, of course, certainly endured to the end, and so he is the model of the one who receives that crown. If you want to be crowned like Stephen, you have to be a Stephen. You want to receive that Stephanos, that crown, you've got to endure even as Stephen endured. The promise of a crown is a reminder of Stephen's endurance and the example that he set. Here's another link. James commands the church to care for widows and orphans. We just looked at that a couple weeks ago. Well, in Acts 6, Stephen was one of the original deacons, one of the original seven deacons in the church. And in Acts 6, we find those deacons were chosen to care for widows. So when Stephen, when James says, go care for widows, he's really again saying, go be a Stephen. Endure like Stephen did, that you might be crowned like Stephen. Stephen lived up to his name. You do the same. Stephen cared for widows. You should do the same. Go care for widows as well. Another connection. When Stephen begins his sermon to the Jews, he speaks of the glory of God. And really, his sermon traces the presence of God's glory with his people as the glory of God moves around to be with his people wherever they are. When you come to the end of the story, as Stephen is dying, he gazes up into heaven and Luke tells us he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It seems that when Stephen saw the glory of God, He saw Jesus. In seeing Jesus, he saw God's glory. The way Luke describes it, you think he's really talking about the same thing. Stephen saw heaven open and he saw God's glory and Jesus standing there. Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. Count of Acts, it makes it clear. Jesus is the glory of God, which means Jesus is God. He reveals God to us because he is God. Jesus is the Shekinah. He is the glory of God made visible to us. When you see Jesus, you see God's glory. To see Jesus is to see the glory of God. But this is what's interesting. In James chapter 2, 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, we'll come back next week, again, Lord willing, and talk about the the partiality uh, part of that. Uh, But what's interesting for us right now is that James, seemingly out of nowhere, calls Jesus the Lord of glory. What a title is this? The Lord of glory. What does it mean? This is James making nothing less than a confession of Christ's deity. The one who is the Lord of glory must be the Lord. He must be God. Who else could be the Lord of glory other than the Lord himself? Sometimes I've made mention of this before. Sometimes James James has been attacked in different points in the history of the church as being sub-Christian because his gospel presentation is not that clear. We've already shown that's not the case. James very clearly presents the Gospel. Everything's rooted in grace. Others have attacked James for not really having much of a Christology. He doesn't say much about Jesus. Well, here, he says everything that needs to be said. That Jesus is the Christ, He's the promised King, and He is the Lord of glory. He's God. He's God in the flesh. And the fact that James is thinking this way is confirmed a few verses later when he says that those Christians who do show partiality become blasphemers of the noble name by which you have been called. They blaspheme the noble name. That's in verse 7. Well, the noble name is undoubtedly the name of Jesus. They've been baptized into His name. They are uh, His disciples, and so they bear His name. And so James is saying those who violate Jesus were, who show partiality, they're blaspheming jesus name but if the name of jesus can be blasphemed then jesus name must be divine blasphemy can only be committed against god you can't blaspheme a mere creature if jesus if his name can be blasphemed he's god this is again a confession of the full deity of jesus And so when James speaks of the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, he really means we're to trust in Jesus as the God man, as God incarnate, as the revelation of God's glory through his death and resurrection. It's a confession of who Jesus really is. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the promised King, he's the one God said he would send to redeem his people, and he is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is the Lord of glory. A few other connections here to notice. Stephen speaks with wisdom according to Acts 6.10. In fact, he speaks with greater wisdom than all his unbelieving Jewish opponents. They're debating, certainly debating who Jesus is, among other things. And Stephen's superior wisdom is put on display. And Luke tells us that his wisdom, this greater wisdom he has, comes from the Spirit. In other words, it comes from above. Uh, in his speech, he goes on to make reference of the wisdom of Joseph and Moses, which also, again, is clearly wisdom that comes from above. And wisdom is clearly a theme in James' letter as well. James 1:5 says if any is lacking wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally and God will grant it. You want to have wisdom like Stephen, So you can refute others and demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of glory. That's what Stephen was arguing for. Ask God for that kind of wisdom. Wisdom for the sake of mission. Wisdom for the sake of proclaiming the Gospel. God gives liberally that kind of wisdom. And of course, this is wisdom that comes from God's Spirit. Uh, As James will later describe, it's wisdom that comes from above. In James 3, James contrasts earthly, demonic wisdom with heavenly, divine wisdom. We want that heavenly divine wisdom that Stephen, that Stephen displayed. In a sense, you could say the whole letter of James is an example, a manifestation of this kind of wisdom. James is wisdom literature. It's kind of a new covenant proverb, full of aphorisms and wise sayings. In Acts 6, 7, and 8, uh, of course, we see the Jews getting progressively more and more angry with Stephen. They can't refute his arguments, and so they get angry with him, and they ultimately murder him. They ultimately put him to death. James tells us in chapter 1, man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. James 1.19. And that's certainly true here. This anger on the part of the Jews is unrighteous anger, and so it cannot produce God's righteousness. It cannot accomplish God's righteous purposes. This unrighteous anger on their part leads them to commit murder. Unrighteous anger leads to murder. That's actually something James warns about. That unrighteous anger leads to unrighteous violence, to wicked violence. And of course, he he, he again and again repeats that law to not murder. Stephen's speech. If you look at Stephen's speech in detail, you find his speech is really all about the law. And about how the law of Moses has been transformed. Well, the law and the transformation of the law is also a theme in James. And so when James talks about the law, he often qualifies it. He doesn't refer to it as the law of Moses, rather he talks about the royal law in chapter 2 verse 8, the perfect law in chapter 1 verse 25, and the law of liberty in 125 and 212. You got those three descriptions of the law that James uses. It's the royal law, it's the perfect law, it's the law of liberty. James speaks of the law this way because he has in view the law as it has been transformed by Christ. The law is no longer in the hands of Moses, now it's in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus has reshaped the law of Moses and brought it up to date, you could say, for a new age, for the new covenant. The moral content of the law has not changed. And that's why you see James quoting from Leviticus, to love your neighbor or quoting from Exodus, to not murder or to commit adultery. The content of the law has not changed. But if if anything, you could say the content of the law, the moral content of the law, has been deepened and intensified. So why does James put these, these different descriptions in front of the law? Well, one thing he wants us to do is show us this new pattern we've been given. We have a new pattern for what it means to keep the law in the life of Jesus. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see what the law lived out looks like. Jesus himself becomes our law. He is the law incarnate, the embodiment of God's law. But there's something else too. The law is also altered in order to allow Gentiles as Gentiles to come into the covenant community as full members. See, the law of Moses was specifically tailored for Israel. And the law of Moses put up all kinds of barriers between the Israelites and the Gentiles. Gentiles could certainly be saved under the Old Covenant, but they couldn't have all the full status and privileges that the Jews got since they possessed the law and the temple. These changes in the law make the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and circumcision all obsolete. And I think when James calls it the perfect law, that's what he's calling attention to. He calls it the perfect law to accent the way the law is now. Now that it's in the hands of Christ, it's perfectly suited for the people of God in their maturity. Paul does something similar to this in Galatians 3 and 4. In a sense saying that with the coming of Jesus and the coming of of, of the Holy Spirit, the people of God have come of age. With the coming of Christ, we've come of age. We were a child under the law of Moses. That was a law suited for our immature state, but we are now an adult under the law of Christ. It's a law of maturity suited for who we are in Him. It's the perfect law, mature law, a law for the mature people of God. James calls it the law of liberty. Obviously, because in keeping this law, we're, we're free. True freedom is found in keeping this law. The law describes the way we are designed to live. There's freedom in this law. The yoke is easy and the burden is life because it's the law of Christ. It's the law of the Spirit. It's the law of liberty. And James also calls it the royal law or the law of the kingdom. The law of the king. And of course, that's because this law is announced by Jesus the king. And this law also announces that Jesus is king. It's really interesting. In Matthew's Gospel, which was probably the only gospel that existed when James writes, maybe the only other book of the New Testament that existed when James writes his letter. So it's what these early Christians in the diaspora would have known. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And then He goes up on a mountain and in chapters 5, 6, and 7, He expounds the law of His kingdom. In a way, you could say that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is the royal law, the law of the king. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen, provides the basis for a great deal of James' letter. These alterations in the law are part of Stephen's message. If you look again at his sermon in Luke, you find that uh, Stephen was put on trial for precisely this reason. Because he said the law of Moses and the customs of Moses had been changed. Because of Christ's coming and the Messiah's coming, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the law of Moses doesn't continue to function in the same kind of way. And Stephen said, because of these changes in the law, the holy place, that is the temple, is now obsolete and it's going to be destroyed. Echoing the prophecy of Jesus that not one stone in the temple would be left upon another. And that is why they put him to death. Because he proclaimed a different law, a transformation of the law. The Jews didn't want the law changed. They didn't want the temple destroyed. In their minds, anyone claiming those things was worthy of death. No, they say that Stephen had blasphemed the law and the temple. When in reality, he had pointed to what the law and the temple actually mean. So the story of Stephen is really crucial to understanding the letter of James. This whole theme of the transformation of the law. Is there in Stephen's sermon, and James picks up on it, and all these other themes as well. James and Stephen go together. But the story of Stephen is instructive for us in all kinds of other ways as well. When Stephen gives his speech, one thing he demonstrates is that God's presence has never been tied to one place. Not even the temple in Jerusalem or the land of Israel. They considered the temple sacred space. They considered the land of Israel holy land. But Stephen shows in a speech that God's presence has never been tied to those things. Nor can it be tied to those things. Stephen presents God as a God who is on the move. Like Aslan, you know, in Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan's on the move. Stephen presents God as a God who is on the move. So when Stephen tells this, uh, when he gives his history lesson, when he tells this story of Israel's history to them, he talks about Abraham. And he says, the God of glory, there's that language again, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Well, where did God appear to Abraham? Where was Abraham when he witnessed God's glory? He was not in the Holy Land where the Jews would have said the glory of God really belongs. No, he was in Mesopotamia, Stephen said. He was in a pagan land. Stephen is saying God appeared on pagan soil. The glory of God appeared in Mesopotamia in a pagan land to Abraham. Then when he speaks of Moses, as as Stephen continues this journey through Israel's history, when he speaks of Moses, Stephen points out where he was when God appeared to him in a glorious way. In a flame of fire in the burning bush. That was the glory of God appearing to Moses in this Fiery, burning bush. The bush was burning but was not consumed. Where was Moses when this happened? He was in the wilderness. Nowhere near the promised land. Certainly nowhere nowhere near the land of Israel. Certainly nowhere near Jerusalem, the future site of Jerusalem. And yet God says to him there in the wilderness, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. How can it be? Holy ground found in the wilderness. And yet there it is. A holy place outside of Israel. A place where God manifested His glory. Sacred space, Stephen is saying, is not limited to Israel. Sacred space is wherever God meets with His people. Even after the temple was built, Stephen's speech makes it clear God's glory was not confined to one place. As Stephen continues moving through the history of Israel, he gets to where the temple was built by Solomon. Solomon. And so Solomon points to the example, Stephen points to the example of Solomon who built the temple, and this really proves Stephen's point. Stephen says the Most High does not dwell in temples made with human hands. Solomon himself knew that and confessed it. The Jews thought of the temple as a house for God they had built a house they had built for God with their own hands. And because they had the temple, they thought they had a monopoly on God's presence. They could access God's blessings themselves because they had the temple, but they could also keep others out. They could keep others at a distance by barring them from the temple. And so if the Jews didn't want the Gentiles to get God's blessings, well, just keep them out of the temple. Hey, build a court for the Gentiles to keep them even further away from where God's blessings are. That's the kind of thing the Jews had done. But Stephen shows God has never worked in this way. Sure, the temple did function as a kind of house for God, but God was never confined to it. And the Jews should have known this. Stephen is saying as he gives this history lesson to them, he's saying, look, you should have known the temple was never anything more than just a temporary mechanism. The temple was no more of a permanent dwelling place for God than that place in Mesopotamia where the glory of God appeared to Abraham. The temple's no more of a permanent dwelling place for God than the burning bush where God appeared to Moses or Mount Sinai when God appeared there. All these places were temporary as God continued to move about. And so it is with the temple. It's not a permanent dwelling place for God. Indeed, Stephen indicates the temple was always intended to be a pointer to something greater. The temple was a promise of something that would come. And Stephen's point is that now that something greater has come. That something greater is now here in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus is the true temple. He is the true burning bush. He is the true revelation of God's glory. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He's the true priest and the true sacrifice. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He's the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice all rolled into one. And He fulfills them all. He is the glory of God revealed to us. All these other institutions and events, they all pointed to Jesus and they're now fulfilled in Him. And what happens when Stephen dies... Shows us that. I've already pointed this out briefly, but what happens when Stephen dies? How does Luke record the story for us? As Stephen dies, he sees into heaven. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus. The Israelites knew the temple on earth was a copy of the heavenly temple. As great as the temple was on earth, it was still just a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. And certainly every Jew knew it would be a wonderful privilege to get to see inside the veil, in a sense, to see inside the most holy place at the center of the temple where the glory of God was found, where the glory of God dwelt between the cherubim, above the cherubim, and the Ark of the Covenants. But really they knew that that was just a shadow of an even greater privilege, the greatest privilege of all would be to get to see into heaven, into the true most holy place. Maybe Moses got a glimpse of this when he got the pattern for the tabernacle. Maybe David got a glimpse of this when he got the pattern for the temple that he handed on to Solomon. But the point is, every Jew knew the greatest privilege of all would be to see into heaven, into the true most holy place where the true glory is found. And as Stephen dies, what happens? Heaven is open and he sees the glory. He sees the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord in heaven. Whatever Jew wanted, Stephen the Christian gets. Stephen is being granted access to the heavenly sanctuary to a vision of God's glory. The Jews thought this should be theirs. And yet Stephen is the one who gets it. And indeed, Stephen's story shows that this vision of God's glory, this opening of the heavens, is available to anyone, Jew or Gentile, in Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's available to us here today. This is what's happening here today. Like I said in the announcements this morning, you know, we might think, oh, someday, wouldn't it be great if heaven was open and I got to see the glory of God like Stephen did? Well, that Sunday is today. And it's every Sunday. The glory of God is here among us. Heaven is open to us. We ascend into the heavenlies. Christ has torn the veil. He's opened the way into the presence of God, into the glory presence. Because Jesus is the glory presence of God. Stephen tells the story of Israel in such a way that they are made to see. That they can't look to the temple to see God's glory. They have to look to Jesus the temple is not glorious. Jesus is. The Lord of glory is not found in the temple. Jesus is the Lord of glory. You must look to him. The story of Stephen's martyrdom is a story of what really matters most. Certainly it is a story of heroism. Certainly it is a story of Stephen's courage. But more than that, it is a story of Stephen's conviction. The conviction that Jesus is the glory of God. That the glory we seek, we find, only in Jesus. It's a story of this conviction that all of God's purposes and promises come to fulfillment in Jesus. It's a story of Stephen's conviction that Jesus is the center of history. He's what this whole world, this whole cosmos, is all about. And so therefore, He's what our lives must be about as well. Stephen's story shows us that trusting in Jesus can bring great suffering. This glory isn't cheap, after all. Revealing this glory took Jesus' death and resurrection. And if we want to share in this glory and behold in this glory, just like what Jesus said, the world hated me and so it's going to hate you also. Jesus in John 15 says, if they hated me, they will hate you because you're with me. That hatred is a a sign that you're on my side. Stephen experienced that hatred, and we may have to taste that hatred as well, but Stephen's vision shows us it's all worth it. It's worth it because this is where glory is found in being with Jesus, in trusting Jesus, in becoming like Jesus, in walking with Jesus. There is often great suffering for the followers of Jesus. There's scorn and rejection, persecution, mockery, even martyrdom for some. There is great suffering. But there is even greater glory. This is a glory that moves with us wherever we go. A glory that is found wherever the disciples of Jesus gather. A glory that is in our midst here today. No, we don't see it. But we trust that this is true. That the Shekinah glory of God is here in our midst. That God is at work in our midst to show Himself to us. That in coming here to hear the Word and to celebrate the Supper, we are beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And as Jesus' life is reproduced in each one of us, we are beholding the glory of God in one another as well. It's glory. This is where the glory is found. And that really, I think, points us to one final thing here in Stephen's story. After Jesus' resurrection, just before his ascension, he appeared to his disciples and he told them to go. To go. He gave them a mission. He told them to go, to spread out, to leave Jerusalem, to go into the rest of Judea and Samaria and then beyond into Gentile lands, proclaiming Christ as the glory of God. To proclaim the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory He's now entered into. That was to be their message. The mission of the church is to spread the glory. To fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory in Christ. That's our mission. To go make this glory known. To spread the glory. But it's interesting. At the beginning of Acts 6, no Christians have gone anywhere. Jesus said to go, but nobody's gone. They're still in the city of Jerusalem. They're still huddled together. The glory, the knowledge of the glory is still concentrated in this one place. It's Stephen's death that scatters them. And you can trace this in the book of Acts, of course. The diaspora happens in response to persecution. That persecution actually becomes the catalyst for the spread of the Gospel. The spread of the glory to new places. Because when these Christians move out from Jerusalem, they take the glory with them. They take the knowledge of the glory with them. The glory gets taken all throughout the Roman Empire. And countless Gentiles get converted. And eventually the glory made its way all the way over to here, to North America where we are. The glory is here among us, but it's our calling to take this glory with us, to continue spreading this glory wherever we go. The spread of the gospel is the spread of the glory. And when you start to see it this way, you realize that our suffering plays a vital role in the spread of this glory. See, Stephen's death, Stephen's death was not a setback, it was a stepping stone. Stephen's death was not a setback in the spread of this glory. It was a stepping stone that helped make it happen. His suffering led to the spread of the glory. And if we are to spread the glory, we will certainly have to suffer as well. We will certainly have to make sacrifices as well. Jesus tells us that. Again, they hated me, they'll hate you. James tells us that in the very beginning of his letter. Counter your trials as joy. Why? Well, he says because these trials enable you to grow and to mature, but also because these trials then help us to spread the glory. As we become more mature, we can spread the glory even more faithfully, more fully. See, like Stephen's trials, our trials can manifest and spread the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. Know that whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties, struggles, trials, whatever problems you have in your life, every problem, every trial is an opportunity. Every trial is an opportunity for you to trust God in new ways and grow to maturity in new ways. Every trial, every struggle you have is an opportunity. Every burden you carry is an opportunity to manifest the glory of God in new ways to the world. To show that glory. To reveal that glory to the world in your life. To show this is what really matters. We serve a God who goes with His people. And Stephen tells a story about the glory of God appearing in Mesopotamia and out in the wilderness and in all these crazy places. And you know what? That story continues down to the present day where the glory of God is being revealed in Birmingham, Alabama as God's people faithfully serve and suffer and sacrifice. That's what we're called to. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. We thank You for this mission You have given to us. We thank You for revealing the glory of Christ to us. For in seeing Christ, we see Your glory. Father, we pray that we would spread this glory. This is our mission, to spread the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that the, that the whole earth might be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Help us to spread this glory by how we live, by how we act, by how we speak, by how we think. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.